I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, actor Elliot Page, you know him from Juno and Inception, was interviewed by Oprah. Elliot is a notoriously private actor, but he'd come out as trans last year, and part of the reason he agreed to this interview now was to help trans kids. I want to tell them that I see them, that they exist, that they are real, And I just want kids to know that they're loved and I'm going to continue to do what I can to try and help this society shift how it treats transgender people. Using visibility as a tool to fight for acceptance is a method the LGBTQ community knows well. Before his interview on Oprah, Elliot also became the first trans man on the cover of Time magazine. This all had echoes of another famous LGBT actor from nearly 25 years ago. It can be hard to imagine, or depending on your age, remember, an era in which Ellen DeGeneres wasn't out. But in 1997, her coming out as lesbian was a huge deal. A big enough deal that it had to be coordinated. In the 90s, Ellen had a sitcom, also called Ellen, where she played a character, also, also called Ellen. And the whole thing was planned out so that when character Ellen came out to her friends on the show, real Ellen came out to the world, which she did in April of 1997. Ellen, like Elliot, had a cover of Time magazine and an interview with Oprah. You nervous or what? Yeah. Yeah? A little bit? Everybody thinks I'm a freak. (laughs) Did you expect it to turn into all of this? I mean, I knew that it would be um, big, but I, I had no idea that it would be this big. The backlash was real. Advertisers pulled, haters hated, Ellen the Show didn't survive another season, and for a while, Ellen the Comedian was out of work. Even Oprah, who'd played a psychoanalyst on the sitcom, was barraged with hate mail. But in their interview, Ellen said something about why she chose to go for it. And then I realized that as long as I had this secret that I worried about all the time, that it made it look like something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And then when I decided that it was time for me to, to say, I'm fine with who I am, I feel good about me, I'm not ashamed of who I am, I thought I can actually show people that it is okay. Another LGBT actor fighting for acceptance by wielding the sword of visibility. For a lot of people in the queer community, Ellen became a timestamp, a shorthand way to talk about the era in which you came out, pre-Ellen and post-Ellen. Alan Gottlieb was firmly pre-Ellen. Alan came out as gay for the first time, when Ellen was still a teenager in 1981. Now, in this same tradition of visibility, 
Alan's looking for a way to use his own experience to help others. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Alan turned 66 this year, but he's not just celebrating a birthday. This year marks 40 years since he came out. And so he decided to throw a coming out anniversary party, COVID style. Alan is a musical theater guy through and through. So he hosted a sort of performance, a live event on YouTube, and invited all of the important people in his life to be there. Something his friends had a lot of opinions about. It is a bit strange to to have a coming out party. Like, who does that? Like, wow, I, I haven't heard of anybody ever doing that. What a marvelous thing to do. I was surprised that anybody would want to do this publicly because it's just so foreign to me. This is something that I see as private. But I'm not surprised because Alan does, he goes big. As for Alan himself... I think it's a unique milestone. It's not that I'm the only person who's lasted 40 years as a gay man, but I don't know that people celebrate it. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be something really interesting to celebrate? So that was the reason for the celebrate part of it. But I wanted to make it more than that. I wanted someone to benefit from hearing my story. There it is again, wanting someone else to benefit. Alan even turned the event into a fundraiser for Rainbow Camp, a summer camp for LGBTQ plus kids and their friends and families. Alan recorded the YouTube live stream of his coming out anniversary, which you'll be hearing excerpts from today. CBC producer Aliza Siegel also interviewed Alan and many of the people in his life to complete the picture. This is the story that Alan wanted to tell, his own journey, a journey that he hopes can provide hope, the story of an out gay man and a life well lived. Here's Alan. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today for this special event. My name is Alan Gottlieb, and I can't tell you how excited I am to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of my coming out as a gay man. The musical journey part refers not only to what today's event will be for you, but also to my own personal journey from when I was in the closet, as they say, to being open with the world about my sexual orientation. Music played a very big part in that journey, as I will explain in the next hour or so. I was born in Brantford, Ontario in 1955 to two Jewish Holocaust survivors from Poland. I was a good student overall in school, but generally pretty quiet and somewhat awkward socially. I guess you could say that I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I just knew that I wasn't part of the popular group of kids and didn't always feel that I fit in. When I reached grade 10 in high school, I joined my school's Operetta Society, an extracurricular group that performed Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. The first production I was in was Iolanthe, and I loved it. When I first stepped onto the stage, I was one of the peers. I was dressed in a long robe. I think it was made of red corduroy with white pile with black shoe polish spots on it to make it look like ermine. And we came on with this very silly walk, but we started singing and it went something like this. 
Loudly let the trumpets bray, tun tun tara, tun tun tara. I think it was a turning point for me because I finally had a peer group with whom I connected. I continued to perform in musicals in high school, which was a boost to my self-esteem. Now at 15, I knew that there was some, if you want to call it, gay side to me. Again, it was relatively early days and hoped that I would be proven wrong, but I knew enough as well, this is not something I'm going to share with anyone. I finished high school and ended up going to the University of Toronto to study sciences. I was very fortunate to live in a university residence called New College for three years. I started university in 1973. My name's Ellen Cameron. I'm a good friend of Alan Gottlieb's. Uh, the first time I met Alan Gottlieb, we were both in residence at University of Toronto in New College. And both of us were sort of linked together through music. Um, I played guitar and sang in high school, and he did the same. And we were both drawn to this musical called New Faces. It was the first year it was operating. New Faces was a musical theater group where we had this, they hired a, a gentleman named Jim Betts, who was a student, I think, at Victoria College at the time. And he would put together a musical. He would write shows. They were original musicals. He also encouraged people in the shows to submit skits, songs. It was an incredible opportunity. When I first met Alan, he didn't have a great deal of confidence. He was very self-effacing, but he was very eager to be involved. And it was clear to me that he had a lot of things that he would like to say were he given the opportunity. My name is Jim Betts. I've been working in the musical theatre for almost 50 years now, and it was as a director and songwriter that I originally met Alan Gottlieb. It was like a cattle call the very first time we met all these people brought into a room, and uh, they were looking for people to audition, and I was brought in as a choreographer, and Alan auditioned to sing. And uh, that's where we met at the auditions. Alan was um, always friendly to everyone, always smiling, and he always made people laugh. He was certainly not a matinee idol. He was never going to play uh, Curly in... Oklahoma. He was always going to be the comic sidekick. And I think he he understood that role. He tended to keep his head down and his shoulders hunched a bit and was never terribly sure of himself. If he would come into a room, he would be the kind of person whose head would peek around the, the door jam first to make sure that uh, he was going to be welcome in here before he came in. But at the same time, he was exuding such enthusiasm and such passion for everything that we did together as a, as a company. We sang together through university and 
He would play guitar and I would harmonize. Alan would always request before he went to bed at night for me to sing him to sleep with a, a Joni Mitchell song called Gallery. I would say, I can't go to bed until you come and sing it to me. It was like a lullaby. When I first saw your gallery, I like the ones of ladies. Then you began to hang up me. You studied to portray me. It seemed clear to me that he was madly in love with at least one of the women cast members of our New Faces company. I remember him writing love songs to at least this, uh, this one young woman. And I remember thinking, here was a guy who was expressing tremendous depth of feeling, and I wasn't sure that he fully understood himself what those feelings were. People were sort of wondering, was Alan gay or not? He didn't seem to date anybody or talk about guys or girls or anything. He was just always lovely and friendly and kind, and nobody ever questioned it. But then a lot of people in theater were gay. I don't think I'd ever met anybody in my small town where I grew up that was gay, so I didn't know how to recognize it. But I suspected that he was because he was not actively engaging with anyone. I just remember once, and this was towards the end of my university career, uh, setting up a date with uh, someone from New Faces, a, a newer member, and hoping that maybe there would be some sparks and this would be the moment when I would be proven straight and uh, there were no sparks and it didn't go anywhere. And I was, I guess, back to realizing that this is not who I am. But it's not something I welcomed, and I, I, I think it took a long time for me to really accept it, for my, even for myself. I was afraid. I didn't know what to expect. And now to get to the inspiration for today's celebration, namely my coming out. This is an excerpt from the well-known Canadian film, Kids in the Hall Brain Candy. I'm gay! He's gay! He's gay! He's gay! Did you hear the news? He's gay! I used to be straight and now I'm gay. I think the drug made me that way. He's gay! He's gay! He's gay! So that is not what my coming out looked like. Let me take you back to 1980. In the fall of that year, I started my teaching career in Brantford, my hometown, with a grade 2-3 split grade, teaching all subjects as well as teaching French to my own class and the class of six-year-olds. I attended a French immersion weekend for French teachers at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario in the winter of 1981. So I went to that weekend, and there was a, a gentleman there that I found physically attractive, and I thought he might be gay. I wasn't sure. 
I imagine that my gaydar was in its primitive form at the time. What I remember in retrospect is that he was wearing Dr. Scholl exercise sandals. It's just like a, a wooden platform with a strap going across the top of your foot. I think some people at the time called them Dr. Scholl clogs, which to me at the time translated into, oh, maybe he's gay. Alan Joseph Gottlieb was this just lovely looking young man, very curly hair, glasses, twinkling eyes, and just a very pleasant look to him. My name is Richard Yake, and 40 years ago, I met Alan Joseph Gottlieb. Alan would have been 26, and I would have been 36. Somehow or other, there didn't seem to be an age difference between us. Uh, at the time, I didn't, I didn't know what his age was, and he didn't ask me for mine. After the weekend, we'd been in touch by phone, and he invited me to visit him on Easter weekend, which I agreed to. I arrived there, and eventually we were sitting down to dinner and having conversation, and in the course of the conversation, he said to me something about his brother-in-law bugging him as to whether or not he's gay. And I thought to myself, wow, here's the perfect opportunity to find out is he or isn't he. So I said to him, what did you say? And he said, I told him I am. At which point I said, he said, well, so am I. So am I. Those are three words I had never said before and certainly not in front of anyone else and not out loud. So it was very uh, dramatic for me. It was very momentous. You can just imagine how honored I felt that he would share that with me, that this, is, um, this, is, this stuff is pretty close to the, the center of our being. I began to kind of tremble. Uh, I couldn't control it uh, because it was such a powerful moment for me. Alan started to shake. I think we both got up from the table and shared a hug at that point. And then there were some tears. And I think the tears were from both of us. I was very fortunate in that he was 10 years older than me, so much more experienced. And he was the most understanding and supportive person I could have had at a coming out. And uh, we ended up in bed together. And I had zero experience at this point. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I was cracking one-liners at an incredible rate uh, out of nervousness. But he was very kind and supportive. He was very understanding with a capital U. Saying so am I to someone else was was huge. At the same time, it wasn't a total relief because I didn't know what lay ahead. I had no close friends that I knew were gay. So at the same time, it was a combination of relief and yet apprehension because of not knowing what this means. He proceeded to correspond with me in the months following, send me poetry. I felt like I was being wooed. My hope was that this would be this beautiful relationship that would just keep developing and growing and, and perhaps be a lifelong one. 
a lovely feeling to be that loved by someone, but it was also too much too fast for me, and I found it, ultimately I had to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. It just wasn't, the timing wasn't right. Once I came out, then the question becomes, now what? What's the next step? And I, I didn't know how to proceed. I didn't have anything like Google to check this out on to see what it's like. I realized that I really wanted to come out to friends, to people that were important to me in my life with whom I hadn't been, I guess, really honest. I hadn't told them about my sexual orientation. And it was, a, in a way, a kind of push-pull because I was pushed to tell them, but I was tempted to pull away because I was afraid I might lose them. By the time Alan chose to come out publicly to his friends, I think by then it was pretty clear to a lot of us that he was gay and that a number of other New Faces people were also gay. We would never have considered that or talked about it back in the early 70s, but by we, by the time we got to the late 70s or the early 80s, I think many of us knew that Alan was gay, and it was just a question of when he was going to come to terms with that himself. This big reveal that Alan made was not shocking to me at all. I, I knew he hadn't dated anybody and talked about anyone of the opposite sex. And we were just uh, buddies. It was like, you know, spending time with my best girlfriend. It was so warm and comfortable. So uh, I had suspected that and I was not shocked at all. I think what is more shocking or surprising is that it was never discussed beforehand. <laughs> the ones that really stick with me are the two friends who in turn came out to me. One of them being someone that I was a roommate with for a year. We lived together, and yet we'd never talked about it. It's It was kind of funny thinking back that here we were living together for a year, both of us gay, and neither one of us out to the other. It's kind of sad, really. But it was also kind of funny. He didn't lose any friends. And I, that does not surprise me at all. That group of people in New Faces, those new college people, were as close a group as I think I've ever been a part of. And so we embraced Alan as much as Alan embraced everyone else. In fact, it may have deepened relationships. It may have made the friendship stronger. Probably from my end, it made the friendship feel a little stronger because I was sort of laid bare. They now knew everything about me that I felt was important, that this was the one piece that I had hidden that they now knew. So everything was open and out there, and that's a good thing. I was proud of him when he did come out, but at the same time realized that 
doesn't make it any easier. In those years, it was still a stigma, and it was a scary time to be gay in the early 80s with AIDS and with the far from universal acceptance of uh, people who had come out. As a teacher, at that time, you wouldn't want to come out because at the time, people were very worried about gay men and boys. And I certainly didn't want to risk my career, especially that early on in my career. It was only my second and third years of teaching when I was in Georgetown. So I had to be very circumspect. So I was definitely in the closet when it came to school. And uh, actually, for most of my life in, in Georgetown, it's also a small town and word would travel quickly, so I, I really had to be very careful. I had no role models. There was no internet then, so I couldn't research it on the internet. I didn't know anyone who was gay, so maybe in some senses it was a kind of falling back. I came out, but then now what? I recently discovered on a cassette if that isn't dating myself, a song I'd written in that first year after coming out. It sums up what my apprehensions were at the time. For many a year, I'd been dreaming that someday I would meet my Cleopatra, my In the song, I'm talking about how I've always dreamed that I would meet that dream girl and sweep her off her feet and we'd have a lovely life and there'd be lots of music in our life and and everything would be great and I realized that that's not going to happen because I've come out so because I've come out now all the questions are starting uh, how do I find someone where is that person in fact the title tells it all could it work out gay I didn't know but it never will come true. You know, I, no more pretending that some woman's going to come along and prove me wrong and that I will be straight forever and ever, amen, and live happily ever after. It, it closed the door on a straight life and opened a new one with hopefully lots of possibilities for a, a happy gay life. But I didn't know whether that was a possibility and how I was going to get there. Could it work out gay? In the past year, I think I was so used to hiding before I came out that it wasn't uh, much of a deal to sort of keep hiding. It's amazing, I guess, with years of practice, what you get used to. But the, the further away from the actual coming out event time went, the less patient I became with living that way. And so I, that's why I was really motivated to get to Toronto. What am I searching for? Toronto was really where I needed to go to get uh, more gay exposure. To give my love to, to share my wildest dreams and more. AC here. Coming up, while Alan's friends know, his parents still don't. That's next. Here or far away, 
And deep inside me there burns a question. Could it work out gay? I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. In 1983, after two years of teaching in Georgetown, I was able to find a job in Toronto teaching French immersion. This certainly helped in my journey as there was a lot more on offer for a gay man in Toronto. I became involved in a number of groups, from a running group to an LGBT Jewish group called Chutzpah, to square dancing. It was funny because it was coming back to a familiar city, but almost like coming back as a different person because I was now a gay man in Toronto as opposed to the last time I was in Toronto when I was a closeted gay man. I've been very lucky compared to many gay men in terms of not losing close friends to AIDS, it definitely could have been much, much worse. One might think that because of the timing of when I came out, just as AIDS was being uh, discovered and understood, that I, I would be a huge risk. But my coming out seemed to have been delayed. It was a very gradual coming out, and it was early on in my being out. It was also new to me. I was still learning, so... I wasn't rushing into anything. I was, I was green, <laughs> very green, which may have been a blessing in disguise. I still was not out to my parents. I had heard stories of LGBTQ plus individuals being disowned by their parents and with Jewish families even mourning for their child as if the child had died. And besides, my well-established role in my family was as the pleaser. My older brother was the rebel and I knew exactly what not to do based on some of his actions. I imagined that my coming out to my parents would be very difficult. I was afraid of losing them. My parents, they met at night school in Windsor, Ontario, where they were brought over by relatives after the war. They had a a clothing store. It was a men's and boys clothing store in Brantford that catered to kind of a working man's income. My father had a real thirst for languages. He loved languages and spoke several languages. He had very little accent when he spoke English. Although when he came to Canada, he was already 29 years old, but he spoke a very good English. He used to put on an accent sometimes. One of his famous lines was, I speak a five language and Hangalish is mine best. By mir bist du schön, by mir hast du rein, by mir bist du schönst auf der Welt. My father had a very good singing voice, and he sang songs both in English and in Yiddish. And I remember the first song he taught me, the first Yiddish song that he taught me, 
was by Mir Bistushain. My mother was raised in a Hasidic family. When I knew her, she wasn't observant in the way that religious Jews often are, but that was her background. That was what she was raised with, as well as a mantra that it's much better to be envied than to be pitied. And I think also a lot of her friends, her contemporaries, had children who had married, straight marriages, and I'm sure she envied that and wanted that for her family. She was a strict parent, and if you don't have the pleaser personality I have, then it just raises hackles and it gets tempers flaring. This whole pleaser persona, I think, came out of my reaction and probably largely subconscious to my mother's Holocaust experiences. She was a survivor. I think I detected a very strong sadness in her between my parents, although they both survived the Holocaust. My father was not in camps. He was in Russia working in factories during the war, uh, but my mother was in the camps. They both lost their parents, so I didn't have grandparents. But with my mother especially, she was the one that was much more serious. My father had more of a sense of humor. In fact, he had a corny sense of humor, which I've inherited. Uh, but my mother is quite serious. And I, I think because of what she'd been through, I don't know how conscious this was, but I felt I didn't want her to suffer more on my account. So that influenced many things I did with them and many things I did for them. But they played a huge part in decisions that I made, life decisions I made, until I realized that I need to make those decisions for me and not for them. My brother and I were both teachers. And we started teaching the same year, me at the elementary level and he at the university level. And my mother once said to me that when we both started our teaching careers, that's when she felt there was a reason for her surviving the Holocaust. That we were the hope, we were the redemption, we were the reason why she survived, because we were in the helping professions and we were teaching people. And I think also in the back of my mind, by being gay, when I came out, usually meant no children. And so that was also something I knew would disappoint my parents, that I wouldn't be giving them grandchildren. To go through the Holocaust and then have no family afterwards means kind of the end of the line. And I imagine in my mother's eyes, both my parents' eyes, that that would be a kind of losing the battle or accepting that Hitler was able to actually wipe out a family and its future. In 1988, exactly seven years since I first came out, I was visiting my parents in Brantford. And while there, my mother said, well, 
Now you have a job and a house. It's time to get a wife. My father, who had a wonderful sense of humor, said to my mother, thinking he was being funny, leave him alone. Maybe he doesn't like girls. I continued trying to skirt the issue, but ultimately I had to fess up. So I told them I was gay. And immediately there were tears. My mother burst out into tears. I think my father was also tearing up. I may also have been tearing up. And I didn't know what to expect. I was kind of sitting there knowing I dropped a bomb, but not knowing what the after effects were going to be. And immediately there were questions. Things like, how do you know or how long have you known? My mother at one point said to me, well, you haven't slept with a woman, how do you know? And I said to her, well, you haven't slept with a woman, how do you know you're not a lesbian? I think they were in shock. They needed time to digest this new piece of information that apparently was out of the blue for them, that they didn't know was coming. I'm guessing there was a lot more reaction when I went home, but in front of me, beyond the tears and questions worrying about, and were uh, genuine questions of concern about me, about AIDS, about my career, they were clearly concerned about me. So I never felt dismissed by them, but it was a huge adjustment for them and they needed time. They needed time to take it in, to digest it. But it was a huge, huge burden from my shoulders once it was out. My parents often said, all that we want is for you to be happy. But what they really meant is, all that we want is for you to be happy as we define being happy. And I think part of their concern with my coming out as well was that this was going to be a sad life for their son. Some people still, I think, believe that being gay is a choice. I can tell you the choice is only whether you're going to be who you are or whether you're going to deny who you are. But I think that was something it took a while for my parents to realize. And again, for the times, I don't think that was unusual. Before I met Alan, about a week before I met Alan, I was in a lineup outside a burger joint and there was this man ahead of me in line, maybe three or four people ahead of me. And he really made an impression because the staff was very, very busy and people were impatient because they were waiting. And he took the time to show his gratitude and smile and engage the employee in conversation. And I just thought, what a nice man. And a week later, I met him. My name is Michael. I'm Alan's partner, and we have been together for more than 30 years. When I first saw Michael, it was at Square Dancing, and I think there was just maybe a glint in his eye, a little mischievous glint in his eye. 
there was just something, there was an energy about him, I think, that I found attractive and decided that it would be really nice if just to meet for coffee and see what happens from there. Our first date was a lunch and it just was such a good time and it was very easy to be with Ellen. We just talked and talked and talked and it just felt so comfortable. And at the end of our date, outside Union Station, Ellen was going to take the subway and I was going to go home and he said, I would kiss you, but people would talk, which I just loved. The more we talked, the more we realized that we have in common in terms of values. I love his sense of humor, very smart, very bright, also a teacher. We just connected. I didn't know exactly where it was going to go. There was some apprehension at first because he's not Jewish. And although I come out to my parents, I knew it would still probably be an issue, but I realized that personally for me, it's not as long as they can respect my Judaism. I'm not going to give it up. And it was a, a very slow growth of a relationship. It wasn't altogether surprising when I wanted my parents to meet my boyfriend several months after they knew I was gay, they initially refused. It was fine to talk to them about friends of mine whom they'd met and tell them later that they happened to be gay, but their son's boyfriend? Very difficult. They were uncomfortable with the thought of meeting a boyfriend. So it took time. And then eventually Alan's father agreed to meet us for lunch. Alan's mother was not ready to meet me at that time. It's one thing that your son is gay. Now that I have a boyfriend, that kind of cements it. When you see someone that you know your son is, is seeing physically, then I think it's, it's clear without possibility of ignoring or denying the first time I met Ellen's dad, Mark. He took us out for lunch. We went to the keg downtown and I could tell right away that he was a little bit nervous, but quickly everyone was at ease and we had a good conversation. I could tell that he was gracious. I could tell that he was kind. I could tell he was a nice man and I liked the rapport between father and son. It took my father meeting Michael before my mother would agree to meet. It's like my father was the scout sent out ahead to make sure that the way was clear. And when that was fine, then they were okay with us coming over. I remember meeting Alan's mother, Regina, for the first time. We were nervous. Everyone was nervous. I remember walking into the condo and seeing this large space with lots of light and we shook hands and we all sat down at the table. I don't remember when it was during the meal, but I do remember saying, this must be uncomfortable for you. This must be difficult for you. Thank you for agreeing to meet me. And he said, I realize this must be very hard for you. She nodded and she said, well. And she said, yes, it is. But I can't afford to lose a son. I can't afford to lose a son. And so we talked a bit about how it was uncomfortable for all of us to meet under these circumstances. But I could tell that there were four really lovely people around this table and that things would work out.
My parents grew to love Michael, and we spent many evenings having dinner together and playing cards afterwards. Despite that, there was an issue when my father, Oliver Sholem, passed away in 2000, succumbing to colon and lung cancer. Jewish tradition is that the family of the deceased has a week of mourning, called Shiva, in which friends and family drop in. Michael, as my partner of 12 years at the time, wanted to be there with me for the Shiva. My mother at first didn't want him to attend the funeral or the Shiva. It wasn't so much homophobia as it was a mantra with which she was raised. It's better to be envied than to be pitied. One thing she did not want was to be pitied by her friends because one of her sons was gay. I knew that my mother loved Michael. She welcomed him in the home. We had these wonderful evenings together. So it, it did come as quite a surprise to me. I didn't expect it uh, when my father died that it would, it would even be an issue. So it was a little jarring initially. And again, it was that mantra that was the culprit. Thankfully, Shula, a cousin of mine, who was like a daughter to my mother, spoke to her and my mother relented. The irony, of course, is that most of my mother's friends already knew about me. And it was, of course, wonderful to have Michael there with me because we're a family. It's one thing to meet just with my parents for dinner and cards, but at simchas or, or at special occasions, uh, whether it's weddings or funerals, to have Michael there is kind of an affirmation that we are all family, that I'm gay and I can have a family and that it's real and it's legitimate and it's respected and it's treated the way any other family member is treated. Let's move ahead to 2003, when it looked like same-sex marriage in Ontario might be a reality. I broached with my mother the possibility of marrying Michael. She basically told me to wait till she was dead. Although she loved Michael, her Hasidic Jewish upbringing made the idea of same-sex marriage seem too strange. An historic ruling on same-sex marriage has been handed down in Toronto by Ontario's Court Ontario's of Appeal. Ontario's Court of Appeal today struck down the federal law that bans same-sex marriages. It said the prohibition was discriminatory and violates the Charter of Rights. The court said this ruling would have immediate effect. That means it's now legal in the province of Ontario for gays and lesbians to get married. In the fall of that year, when gay marriage was legal in Ontario, Michael and I decided we wanted to marry. I was torn as to whether or not to invite my mother or to wait till the deed was done to tell her we were married. When I invited her, she asked if she could think about it, and a few days later she said she would attend. I asked my mother if she would walk us up the aisle, as my father had already passed and Michael's surviving parent, his dad, was too infirm to attend. Again, my then 84-year-old mother asked if she could think about it. A couple of days later, she called to say, Of course I'll walk you up the aisle. I walked your brother up the aisle. Why wouldn't I do the same for you and Michael? Family and friends, um, Michael and Alan are pleased that you are here today to share this special moment with them.
was a beautiful sunny day. My mother in a, a lovely fuchsia suit. Accompanying uh, Alan and Michael is uh, Regina Gottlieb. My mother walked us up the aisle, which is basically along the grass. It just felt really good. It was so nice to have Regina between us and to walk up the aisle together arm in arm. Michael and Alan, a wedding is the ultimate celebration of love. We, all of us here, have gathered with you to encourage you and to help you celebrate your marriage. Your commitment today is historic in many ways. You are among a growing and courageous number of same-sex couples who have had the courage and strength to stand before family and friends to say, I love you. You are also making this affirmation and assuming these rights of marriage in one of the few places on earth where this right has been legitimized and legalized. I remember being actually proud of Canada and Canadians for allowing this to happen. It was almost like I felt like I was part of the club and accepted by more than the people in my life, but but also by the people around me. Michael, please repeat after me. I, Michael, take you, Alan. I, Michael, take you, Alan. To be my life partner. I, Alan, take you, Michael. To enjoy. I, Alan, take you, Michael. To be my life partner. To be my life To laugh with you, enjoy. Michael, repeat after me. I, Michael, give you, Alan, this ring. I, Michael, give you, Alan, this ring. May you wear it as a sign of my love. You wear it as a sign of my love. And a symbol of the commitment we have made this day. And a symbol of the commitment we have made this day. A symbol of the commitment that we have made this day. And so we each broke a glass under the canopy. I will now ask the four witnesses to acknowledge their support for this union by participating in the wrapping of the glasses in preparation for the ceremonial breaking. Yeah! One of the first Yiddish expressions I learned from my parents was Nor of Simchas. May you have nothing but Simchas, joyous occasions. And for Michael and me, this certainly was a joyous occasion. And I'd like to think that in the end it was for my mother as well. Looking back at the, the journey up to that point and the obstacles that were in the way and how far my mother had come to, to accepting. And, and I think actually walking us up the aisle is more than accepting. It's being part of who I am. And that was huge. It's quite remarkable, given that they came, my mother, especially from a very religious family, that they survived what they went through. That in itself is miraculous. Given all that as the backdrop, accepting a gay son and his partner, which, especially for those times, was very unusual. If it happened more often, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. But it was a big deal. And I feel incredibly lucky. The wedding itself was a statement. And it was... Uh, a milestone of how far 
we had come and where we were and that we could have a wedding like all of our straight friends had had weddings and declare our love for each other publicly was an amazing moment. Wasn't that long ago when I felt so afraid? So here I am, 40 years after my initial coming out, 33 years since coming out to my parents, and 17 years since being legally married. It has been and continues to be a wonderful journey. I am filled with gratitude for all the blessings in my life, including Michael, music, friends, and family. It has been quite a journey thus far. My wish is that my journey has demonstrated that there is much hope for two-spirited LGBTQ plus people to lead fulfilling, rich lives. I'm especially hoping that young people in their teens who might be coming out and wondering, can I have a good life? Can I actually be happy or content? We'll see that it's absolutely possible. If this story will give hope to one person who, before they heard it, thought that, that life was hopeless and there's no way they could be happy, then to me it's worthwhile. I think it would be amazing if coming out was not a, a process or not even an issue. The people are who they are. It would be so nice if people could just love who they want to love and it's not even an issue. Like it's no big deal. That in itself would be huge. Alan Gottlieb. That doc was produced by Eliza Siegel. It was edited by Allison Cook with Jennifer Warren. The song you're hearing now is by one of Alan's friends, Tammy Tuesday. Other music credits go to Bernard Edwards, Niall Rogers, and Diana Ross for the 1980 hit, I'm Coming Out, which we played near the top of today's episode. You also heard musicians Lisa Kent and Danny Greenspoon performing Erev, Shel Shoshanim, and of course, music by Alan himself. Alan's coming out anniversary fete was a fundraiser, with donations going to Rainbow Camp for LGBTQ plus youth, their friends, and families. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Kent Hoffman, Tanera McLean, Andrew Friesen, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer, our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.